What's up, everybody? This is Peter Nesbitt from Team Pay, and you're listening to Awkward Conversations, Tales from the Finance Department. Finance professionals are often forced to be the bad guy, which can lead to some uncomfortable conversations with employees about business purchases. On this show, I sit down with finance leaders to discuss their most awkward conversations and what they've learned throughout their careers. Listeners can earn free CPE credit for listening to this podcast. Just download the Earmark CPE app from the App Store or visit earmarkcpe.com. My guest today is John Zanowski, electrical engineer turned startup CFO. He's helped five companies go from single digits to $100 million revenue, including General Assembly and Second Life. Two IPOs, sale in nine companies, and he sold one of those twice. He has four kids aged 12 to 19 uh, and lives on a farm in San Diego. So, John, our podcast is called Awkward Conversations because finance is often forced to ask employees awkward conversations about you know, company spending or all sorts of other sort of things like that. From your long career, can you share a story um, that, of something that was an awkward conversation you had to do as a finance professional? Yeah, thanks, Peter. Um, you know, it's uh, in this case, I might be a little bit on the spectrum because, you know, a lot of people shy from talking about money. And, um, you know, we've obviously chosen careers where it's our job to talk about money. You know, I'm, I'm generally working with rapidly growing companies and, you know, emerging brands. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, you've got founder expenses in there and you've got lots of employees with credit cards, you know, able to spend on anything at any time. And and more often than not, I, I think about that. I think about using detective controls on that and just, you know, downloading everything every week and knowing what's going on every single week. But oddly enough, I, I would say more of the interesting, awkward conversations that I've had have been, you know, more at the board level. There's just so many awkward conversations that, you know, founders have with VCs and private equity firms and lenders that, you know, we could talk about uh, at Second Life when Bill Gurley from Benchmark Capital and Mitch Kapoor, uh, you know, founder mm-hmm. of Lotus 123, were on the board there. And uh, there was definitely an awkward conversation about, you know, preparing for an audit that we went through because we had to, that we could talk about. But most recently, I was very surprised that that uh, about this awkward conversation. So um, I was a founding board member of a company called Commissions Inc. It was uh, mm-hmm. a real estate lead generation system, similar to the company I took public called House Values. And um, we got that company to profitability and about fifteen million of revenue, and we'd only raised like a million dollars from friends and family. Wow. And then uh, I was tasked with selling the company. And so we we sold it to a private equity firm, which is awesome in San Francisco called Sarant Capital. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and that normally would be my job is done. You know, they have a new board and I'm no longer on the board. But they uh, they invited me back to the board. And I was very surprised at the first board meeting, you know, sort of after it was over, I was like, OK, well, when are we going to sell it? You know, and uh, it was like crickets in the boardroom when are we going to sell the company, you know? And uh, so then I said, well, let me put that another way. You just bought this company for $45 million. Over here, Mm -hmm. on my other hand, I have $200 million in cash. Which do you want? And of course, (laughs) you know, when you frame the question that way, it does eliminate sort of the, you know, new investor and found new founder CEO working together for the first time. And that started a productive conversation. And in that case, 
you know, I, I said, cause I think we can get that $200 million in 18 to 24 months and here's why, and here's how. And, um, uh, I was wrong. We ended up selling that company 16 months later for 220 million. And, uh, wow. I think that's, that's the great. highest, that's the highest IRR that, uh, Saren Capital will ever see. Yeah, that, well, that's a, a great outcome there with that awkward conversation. Um, and I'd love to hear more about that other board conversation w- when you were at Afterlife. Second Life, yeah. The or Second Life, yeah. Second Life, yeah. So I like, you know, Second Life, I, I sort of got there before anybody heard of it. And mm-hmm. uh, I jokingly say I left after nobody cared. And uh, But we were just <laughs> so far out there in terms of, you know, we had hundreds of employees all over the world living yeah. in Second Life collaborating in Second Life, presenting in Second Life. I wrote a lot about the virtual economy there and our virtual mm-hmm. currency, the Linden dollar, you know, and this is long before Satoshi and blockchain. And so I was brought in because I'd just taken House Values Public and uh, and they wanted to prepare Second Life for an IPO. And it, it, mm-hmm. was, it was definitely ready for it, you know. And uh, to set the stage... When I, I started on the day of a board meeting and, and the company happened to get its credit cards hacked. And this was long wow. before PCI compliance and everything else. So that was that was definitely an awkward conversation at the board. And then six weeks later at the next board meeting, we showed up and, and I had announced that we'd raise prices 50%. And the board was like, you raise prices 50% without conferring with the board. And I was like, well, <laughs> <laughs> so that, that was that was a little awkward. But then. Then mm-hmm. literally over the next 30 days, we generated $2 million worth of cash yeah. because uh, when we raised prices on the virtual land, we unintentionally mm-hmm. increased stimulated demand. And yeah. uh, so that, that there, there was a series of awkward conversations there. But then as we're, as we're kind of, we went, we had to go to the SEC for preclearance. And this mm-hmm. is a great sentence for preclearance on the sale on the revenue recognition methodology for the sale of an infinitely transferable digital good. And, mm. um, and as I like to say about revenue recognition, it can be simplified as like right away, never, or somewhere in between. And, yep. uh, and I would just have a ton of conversations with very smart accountants from KPMG. There was one guy who could quote like, you know, a third level bullet point from the Deloitte and Touche revenue recognition, you know, kind of practice uh, methodology yeah. and, uh, Anyway, it was a uh, at first, you know, KPMG was having trouble getting their heads around it and everything else. And so we had one board meeting where, you know, Bill Gurley and he is so brilliant and so big and so smart. He's so intimidating in a board meeting. I used, he used mm-hmm. to call it like the post Gurley depression syndrome after every board meeting, because no matter how good things were going, Bill would mm-hmm. just go and find exactly the right thing to talk about and drive hard at it. And so, but wow. in this case, in this case, he was like, you know, I said, we're having trouble getting this through KPMG. And he said, well, maybe our auditor isn't senior enough. And I was like, you know, I, Bill, I'm not sure it works that way anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think the seniority of our auditor is going to help us push anything through at this point in, uh, mm-hmm. in compliance world. And then, so there was a contentious conversation with, between Bill and Mitch Kapoor at the time. And then. At the next board meeting, when we what had, was so contentious when, about it? Well, because Bill was like, you know, we're it's taking too long, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, and are you handling it the right way? Why can't you get this through? You know, the auditors at KPMG, and you know, mm-hmm. we were just in the middle of the process, sort of really, you know, talking to the board about how the sausage is being made, and mm. and and this is when 
you know, sometimes yeah, way in the weeds of the board, way too far in the weeds. Anyway, the next board meeting, we'd gotten pre-clearance, you know, from the mm-hmm. SEC for the sale of an infinitely transferable digital good. And then Mitch Kapoor, you know, kind of he was sitting next to Bill Gurley and you sort of elbowed, elbowed him and said, you know, maybe the next time John says he's going to take care of something, we should give him a little leeway. And so that's <laughs> that's my uh, Bill Gurley awkward conversation. Yeah. Well, that's those are some some fantastic conversations there with, you know, the board and especially like, you know, getting your corporate credit card is hacked. Um, what happened there? Like, I mean, was that like, did, how do you find out what were some of the impacts that to your company at the time? Well, it's, yeah, it was, it, well, so the really interesting thing about that was if you had at Second Life at the time on the Lindex, the, our mm-hmm. virtual currency exchange, yeah. if you had a hacked credit card or you had a bunch of them, even better, mm-hmm. if you had a bunch of the hacked credit cards, you could create bots that would sort of go buy Linden dollars and then transfer them, you know, to what we would call a mule. And then the mule would, Mm -hmm. you know, the mule would have to be an account that had some level of trustworthiness. And then it could go on the Lindex, sell all those Linden dollars. And then, and then we would send Mm -hmm. them, you know, cash when the, after they sold them. And so, um, so it was a huge problem. And immediately I think I took like a $2 million sort of reserve for fraud. And, uh, but then that team there was just so smart. And uh, Marius Moscovici from uh, Metrics Insights now, mm-hmm. he he's the, he was the head of the data warehouse. And so we ended up kind of building a data warehouse that showed us potential fraud in real time. And every transaction in Second Life, hmm. where it happened, who it happened with, who was the person they transacted before and after. And, uh, and then wow. we just basically scored every single transaction with a risk score. And then you could just see it mm-hmm. kind of scrolling on the screen, prioritizing. And then we had a fraud team all over it. But immediately yeah. then I think we went with uh, Global Collect at the time. And then they gave us, you know, they made they made it PCI compliant before that was sort of even a term. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's that's so interesting, you know, especially like the early days of like really like sort of in-game economics and fintech. Um, that's such a interesting anecdote from um, the Second Life days. Yeah, it's... Uh, um, yeah, it, it, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was to say, you know, I, I I'd love to talk about Second Life a little bit, a little bit later, but I actually want to hear about your sort of uh, story at General Assembly and kind of your journey there. Oh, General Assembly, again. So General Assembly, um, I was introduced to the founders, you know, Jake, Jake Schwartz and uh, Adam Pritzker mm-hmm. and Brad Hargraves. I was introduced to them sort of right after they got going. And uh, because yeah. they, they had an investment from Maveron in Seattle, and uh, the VP mm-hmm. of HR from the company I took public referred me into General Assembly. And, you know, at first, the conversation I have with, you know, somebody, you know, they just raised like a few four million dollars of, of venture capital. And, um, you know, I sort of, you know, just talked to them about their finance and accounting needs and things like that. And was, you know, at first, it's like, you know, every company wants the CFO it can't have. And every CFO mm-hmm. wants the the next level job that it can't that she can't get. Yep. <laughs> and uh, and so in this case, you know, I was like, you know, it's like you're not you, you know, until I can land my helicopter on your building, you know, we're you're a little <laughs> too small for me to be your full time CFO. <laughs> and uh, and I'm, so I'm gonna use that quote the, sometime, John. <laughs> <laughs> that was the first time. Uh, that was the first time we had the conversation, and then. Then they sort of burned through their capital and, you know, then they were like, 
you know, the, the Jill from, uh, the VP of HR that introduced me, she calls up and she says, okay, we really, we want to get you engaged here. And I said, mm-hmm. you know, it's in New York. I don't want to fly from San Diego to New York. It's like, I didn't really want to mm-hmm. do it. My wife said, no, it'll be good. You know, she's from New York city. It'll be a good network to get mm-hmm. involved in. And so, so I flew out there and, you know, without basically saying, look, don't pay me until you raise money. And, um, I'll jump in yep. and, and, uh, so it was like, I love giving the gift and the gift for me yeah, yeah. is an integrated financial model. And so I, I built an integrated financial model for general assembly when it, when it had only done like 26 courses. And so to do wow. that, we, I asked for the data about those 26 courses. Mm-hmm. When did they launch the website? How many visitors did they get to the, to the website? How many leads mm-hmm. came from the website, how many students, how many students enrolled in the course, how many completed the course. And so we had that data, you know, we called it the education programs and outs, outcomes database source. And, uh, and then we used that to start to forecast the business. And, and I coached Jake mm-hmm. to manage the team of, of resident directors of, of regional directors on a weekly basis with this set of metrics. And then they, we started hitting our numbers. We started exceeding our numbers. And, and that's when they were like, we want to hire you. And I was like, I live in mm-hmm. San Diego. And, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, <laughs> and then six months, you know, six months later, they're like, we want to hire you. And I was like, I still live in San Diego. And that's when they were like, you can stay there. Mm-hmm. So I was the CFO there for that's about great. three years from San Diego. And for me, it was traveling out one week a month on an expense account to go work with a bunch of brilliant 28 year olds from Ivy league schools on a mission, you know, their mission. I just love big yeah, visions. Yeah. Their mission is a global community of individuals empowered to pursue the work they love. Second life was yeah. to connect everyone to an online world that improves the human condition. So, you know, in building on those, so sort of poetic big visions at assembled brands, which mm-hmm. I co-founded ours, there was to reinvent venture financing for the 21st century. Hmm. And, uh, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a big sucker for big visions. And yeah, I want to, I want to touch. I love the fact that you remember all these visions too, especially from, you know, companies years past. Uh, I think it definitely speaks to like the value of having that sort of big vision and, you know, really impermeating then of the culture there. Uh, but I want to touch base on something you mentioned, you know, this gift of integrated financial model. Can you share a little bit more about what that you're talking about here? Yeah. So, so I'm actually an electrical engineer. I have a master's in electrical mm-hmm. engineering. When I was in eighth grade, I programmed an Apple II Plus to solve the Rubik's Cube. I, mm-hmm. you know, computers were brand new then. You know, there was no internet. You actually had to learn things, you know, Peter, by reading a book. Mm-hmm. It was weird then. And <laughs> uh, and so... It didn't just come up on my newsfeed? <laughs> and so, um, so, you know... I, I would go into these companies, you know, and five out of five of my full-time jobs as CFO, I took the companies from single digits to 100 million. And I didn't realize at the time until I sort of turned 50 and was able to look back on the whole thing, I didn't realize mm-hmm. that I had a methodology. And my, my methodology, mm-hmm. I, I've, I've named that integrated financial modeling. And then I, I, I found that most of the real great relationships that we've, I've built over time with founders, I mm-hmm. start by giving the gift. And the, and the gift is, you know, give us accountant access to your QuickBooks online. And now I built a system that automatically builds an integrated financial model. And we, we mm-hmm. use that same methodology at Assembled Brands when, when uh, if you go to assemblebrands.app mm-hmm. to apply for credit there, um, mm-hmm. we build an integrated financial model to do the underwriting. 
And it, it's, it was while working with assembled brands that I could see, I saw the books of thousands of emerging consumer brands. And I, I'm very sad to say mm-hmm. that most bookkeepers suck and, and they suck because, <laughs> yep. you know, they studied accounting and, mm-hmm. and, and I think about, I think about building a system. I think about the, the business systems that drive transactions in the bank account. Mm-hmm. And I've kind of codified this into what we call weekly accounting. And weekly accounting is we close your books 52 times a year instead of 12. And to an electrical engineer, that's a much higher sampling frequency. And with a higher sampling frequency, mm-hmm. I can predict what the signal will do better. So with only 12 samples, mm. I, you know, you get a reasonable level of prediction. But if you have 52 samples of a business, you know, mm-hmm. And then what I find is when you put weekly metrics in front of people, and this was especially true at, at both assembled at both General Assembly and now recently Robin Healthcare. Mm-hmm. So at, at General Assembly, yeah. you know, very soon after being there, I went to Jake and I was like, you know, and this might have been an awkward conversation too, but you know, it's like since you hired that VP of marketing, all your marketing metrics are going in the wrong direction. Hmm. <laughs> and he said, I know. Can you help? And I was like, well, listen, I'm not going to be your interim chief marketing officer, but I will re-engineer the marketing department. Mm -hmm. And so we went in and we went and basically double clicked on every single top level metric and then put weekly data in front of the team, you know, with simple conditional Mm -hmm. formatting. Green, is it getting better? Red, is it getting worse? And then we would just sit with the team once a week and I would just see how people were responding to the data. And Mm -hmm. inevitably when you put the right data in front of people and they want, you know, they want to succeed, they'll do yeah. the right things. And immediately after putting weekly data in front of teams, I've just, it always improves the business. Mm-hmm. And so, so we start by giving the gift of an integrated financial model. And now with, uh, you know, since, um, since leaving assembled brands and just being on the board and on the credit committee, we're building brights and systems, which enables basically founders and, finance professionals to systematize all the little micro tasks inside a finance department. Mm -hmm. And we built this for ourselves just to enable us to help more companies. Mm -hmm. And, and now it's just such a, I get such a great reward from, from giving the gift. And it's so easy for me because I have a great team and, and Mm -hmm. uh, we have a great systems that do a lot of it in an automated way that we just love giving it away. So oh, you awesome. can, you can, people can go to gift.brightzen.com mm-hmm. and, uh, to, if they want, if they'd like to get the gift. Yeah, definitely. Well, we'll make sure you put that link into, uh, the podcast as well here for anyone else. Um, can you tell, I, you mentioned a little bit about assembled brands and I, I know what it's out, but about, but I'd love to hear in your words, like what you're all doing there at assembled brands and what makes it different. Yeah. So, so Adam Pritzker was a co-founder of general assembly mm-hmm. and, um, and he was the largest shareholder and chairman all the way from inception to exit. Just an amazing business person and an amazing business family, really. And just, just, uh, it's, it's been a pleasure to work with him. And he had, after he sort of left day to day responsibilities at General Assembly, he started Assembled Brands. And initially, you know, we had a multi brand retailer called The Line. We had mm-hmm. a number of women's ready to wear brands. One of them in particular has been very successful called Kate, K H A I T E dot com. It's a, a luxury denim and knit brand um, with average order values like 
you know, over 500 or between 500 and a thousand dollars. It's just an unbelievable, Mm -hmm. unbelievable brand that, that women love. And when we, when we co-founded Kate, uh, with Kate Holstein, the designer, you know, we, we found that we had a lot of the underlying sort of infrastructure to help her be successful. And so we were able to make a smaller investment and help her along a lot farther with less money. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. um, Later, when I went out looking for working capital for Kate, you know, I found that the way I say it is that I, I had to buy a fax machine to communicate with the factoring industry. Hmm. And they were definitely stuck in the 80s, you know, only being able to lend against the credit of big retailers, mm-hmm. which to me now, when you say it now, you're like, that's crazy, especially after COVID and what that did to retail. Mm-hmm. But it was when doing that, they wouldn't lend money against the inventory of emerging consumer brands. So I went to Adam and I said, I will. He's like, wait, say more about that. I said, well, you know, the inventory that an emerging consumer brands is a financeable equation, if you say it like this, with some probability over some period of time, that inventory will sell at a price. And then based on the historical data, Mm -hmm. so it assembled brands, we collect, we connect to QuickBooks, Shopify, Google Analytics, Facebook, and we ingest all your data and uh, and build an integrated financial model. And then from that, we can make better predictions about the business than probably even the founders themselves. And from that, I, we built 150 integrated financial models for emerging consumer brands like Marco mm-hmm. and many others based in both New York and LA at the time. And from that, we I built a database of the integrated financial models and all the key metrics like repeat mm-hmm. customer purchases and gross margin and you know, average order value and customer acquisition costs to lifetime mm-hmm. gross profit and all, all those metrics. And what, what at the time I didn't even know was a credit box mm-hmm. was like we defined a criteria that we would invest in these businesses. And, and Adam, you know, was super bold and aggressive. And, you know, we made a couple million dollars worth of bets. And then Adam went out and closed a hundred million dollar senior secured line of credit for Oak Tree. Yeah. And so, for me, I built assembled brands so I could say yes more often than a mm-hmm. VC. And uh, at the time, like we were making $100,000 loans to emerging consumer brands. And uh, now now we definitely have gone up mm-hmm. market where it's like a million to $5 million facilities. And we, we finance groups of companies that are acquiring, mm-hmm. acquiring brands. And it's, so now we have about $100 million of capital committed to emerging consumer brands. And, um, you know, brands like June Shine and uh, one of my favorites is Bill Murray Golf and uh, all, all, all kinds of great brands that we love. Fluffworks mm-hmm. and and um, and and there, you know, what we've really got now is a profitable company yep. that is consuming, ingesting the data of the entire industry. Mm. And so I like to think of that for me as fund one. Yep. And, uh, one of the companies I'm working with now called Crowdbotics is a distributed software development agency, and we're helping them build a fund so they can invest in their customers as well. So you turn a marketing expense Mm -hmm. into an investment that builds your community of customers. Interesting. So you're, you're taking the same model you did at Simple Brands and bring it to, in this way for companies to invest in their, in, in their customers. Exactly. And so in that way, the integrated financial model is used as an underwriting platform. Mm-hmm. So uh, we do, uh, we work with a, uh, a company that has a portfolio of physics research investments. Mm-hmm. And 
and we manage the weekly bookkeeping across, you know, 15 companies for them. You know, when they used to have a department of three or four people and there was high turnover in the accounting department all the time. Mm-hmm. Now we've just automated that on our platform. And, um, you know, so I can I I can go in and look at any one of the integrated financial models for any one of the 50 or 60 companies that we're working with. And it's always up to date and it's always perfect because it's checked every week and updated every mm-hmm. week. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, and I guess now what's so what will be the next, you know, when you think you said that's a fund one for uh, simple brands. Your, your fund two is using me this one or what, how else do you think you'll be able to use the integrated financial model? So for me, for me, this is, it is just, you know, as an electrical engineer turned startup mm-hmm. CFO, you know, it's quite a differentiated perspective on, on business. And so the way I like to work is just to find very smart people with great ideas mm-hmm. and then empower them with an integrated financial model and Monday morning metrics. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then, you know, the cream rises to the top in all cases. And that's, you know, General Assembly was one of like, again, 50 or 60 companies at the time that I was working mm-hmm. with, you know, and that sort of happened again. Most recently, um, I've been a fractional CFO to Robin Healthcare. And uh, Robin has, you know, an Alexa-like device that sits in the exam room mm-hmm. and enables the doctor to just walk in, talk to the patient, not touch a computer, and all the notes and codes get done. Mm. So I knew the founder because I helped him with an integrated financial model for his first company, Extra Bucks, yep. which we sold to Ebates. And uh, when when he when he came around and told me about Robin, Noah Ayerhan had uh, he'd sold five doctors for over like fifteen hundred dollars a mm-hmm. month. And the any time a doctor saw it, they'd want more. They another doctor would want it. So we we felt like we had a viral product in the space. Yeah. We recently just closed a, a $50 million round there. And so that that's really the, the, the model for how I like to work. I like to be a, you know, with the founders, foundering, mm-hmm. at, you know, lots of times we'll be a founding investor. Uh, we like investing, you know, with both our effort and our dollars. Yeah. And then we help them systematize their finance department. And then last summer I was like, okay, you guys, we just raised our series B. It's time for you to find, it's time for you to hire a full-time CFO. Yeah. I was just about and, to ask um, you, like, what, what's that transition like? And when do you have that conversation? Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting as it certainly was a lot different, you know, like 20 years ago when I needed a job, yep. you know, now that, you know, really part of, part of our ethos is that I do this for fun. Mm-hmm. And if it isn't fun, you know, then I, think about why it's not fun and either, you know, solve that problem or, you know, kind of step back from the relationship. Yeah. And for me, you know, I, I live in this world of rapidly growing companies with small teams making fast decisions. Mm-hmm. And when you get to, when you get to 700 employees like Robin, yeah. it's like, <laughs> there's a lot more day-to-day management that goes on. And, mm-hmm. and I like building the system to empower the managers versus, sort of being in the day-to-day on that. And so so now when I'm working with a company like Crowdbotics or Trust yep. & Will here, both, both yeah, having yeah, raised Trust and Will, big yeah. Series Bs, yeah, the, uh, we, we definitely can sort of be your finance department for a period of time. And, and then, but then when there's a bigger management team, that's when it's time mm-hmm. to drop in. You know, usually what's required first, yeah. and I would love anybody who's, anybody who's in, who's an FP&A person, 
I would mm-hmm. love to meet as many FP&A people as want to go to gift.brightsend.com and reach out to me or reach out to me on LinkedIn. Yeah, We can empower FP&A professionals. And I just think that's like the first in-house resource that I think many companies should buy if they've been outsourcing, if they've been outsourcing part of their finance department. Why, why is that? Well, I, you know, I, I say, you know, don't hire a CFO until you implement a CFO system. Mm-hmm. And when I say CFO system, I don't just mean NetSuite or yeah. Intact or things like that. I, I think about a, di- a data warehouse mm-hmm. effectively build. So I build data warehouses for these small businesses. Mm-hmm. And then we connect them into Google Sheets and, and break it down weekly and monthly. And it, you, when you, a lot of accounting trained CFOs aren't as technically savvy as we are. Mm-hmm. And and we focus on being able to, at scale, yep. rapidly manipulate the data from any application into the way, into the right way. So it drives mm-hmm. the results, focusing on the top level metric of customer acquisition cost to lifetime value. Mm-hmm. And we've just been doing that for 25 years. And it's just, it's just when you do it, inevitably, the like I said before, the cream rises to the top. Yeah, that, that, that that's really interesting. Yeah, and I think, and I guess... The big difference in your mind then is like, I guess, for people who don't have a, a CFO operating system, they're not getting these sort of weekly metrics or they're not getting, they're not actually focusing on the, the metrics that do matter for those companies. Yeah. Listen, there's so many business intelligence tools out there, mm-hmm. you know, and there's, there's going to be so much AI. Yep. Um, I'm working with a lot of companies that I call eat the work companies. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, so Robin Healthcare is an eat the work company for doctors so they don't have to do their notes and codes and they save hours a day. Mm-hmm. Trademarkia eats the work of doing a trademark for you very cost effectively. Weekly accounting eats the work of accepting your transactions in, in QuickBooks online. And and I see no matter how, no matter what system you have, you still have to have somebody who knows how to use it. Mm-hmm. And I always thought about, I always thought about the accounting and finance department you know, there's the engineers of a finance and accounting department, mm-hmm. and then there's the operators of a finance and accounting department. And and usually that's a very different skill set. And it's hard to find in in one in kind of one person. And so what we find is the most valuable aspect of it is engineering the right data to the right at the right time mm-hmm. to the right people. And there's lots of tools to do that, and anybody can do anything that we do by themselves. But we're at, we happen to be experts in doing it in an automated and scalable way. Mm-hmm. It's almost as if Peter, what we've what we've done is build like a what I call like a a task rabbit for yeah. specialized digital micro tasks, hmm. right? So I can my vision for this with uh, my team was I want to be able to you know almost like say Alexa, get the HubSpot data from MarPipe in the weekly and monthly format in BigQuery. And now Mm. that system exists. I can go into Slack, into Mm. our data links channel, and I can request a new data source. And then the next day it's done and it's always Mm. updated. And I never have to think about it. I think so many people at so many companies are downloading a CSV and uploading it here and their their spreadsheets are proliferating and there's data everywhere. And there isn't an information architecture or like mm-hmm. I say, like a drop of architecture of the metrics that drive the business. And when we when we implement that, companies get better. Yeah, that's it's really interesting because like I think in like 
traditional like software businesses or like B2B sales, you'll have like a RevOps department who maybe is sort of responsible for like the revenue or sales and marketing data or equal to market data. And it sounds like for, especially these like emerging brands, like there's this, you know, there that isn't really, that's not a, a not really a function or you're really filling in that function and then, br- then bridging that back down to the financial data as well. Yeah, I think that's right. Am I, am I able to share my screen here? I think we're just going to keep this on, on on voice, but we can definitely share anything um, as a link after the oh, I after see. the yeah. yeah after the podcast. Yeah, so so every every I I found myself doing this, you know, over and over and over at each company mm-hmm. is you know get the data out of this system, get the data out of HubSpot, get the data out of Salesforce, get the data out of Facebook, get the data out of Google Ads, right? Yep, and and I found myself having to do that over and over at the next company and the next company and the mm-hmm. next company. And I was just like, okay, well, this is silly. So I registered a whole bunch of domains like HubSpot Weekly and Stripe yep, Weekly. Yep, yep. So like now, I if you have Stripe, I don't know how many people have trouble with Stripe revenue recognition out there, but if you have trouble yeah. with Stripe revenue recognition, it, we have automated that at Crowdbotics to a point where we mm-hmm. have a daily AR roll forward. So we see the wow. new invoices and the new payments and I, Stripe is so amazing, but I'm I'm always confounded by how difficult revenue recognition out of Stripe is. And basically, once you do it, well, now when we do it once, mm-hmm. we've done it for everybody. And that's and so then it just becomes another another app in the data links that we can automatically mm-hmm. ask for. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's really an interesting way to think about it. Like I, th- I think about this a lot when I talk to other CFOs around like what are the systems you need to create around the different data sources. I think a lot of people, to your point, just do this so ad hoc early on, even later on in terms of just pulling one-off reports and not not really thinking of the bigger system and really making this an automated process. Yeah, and so we basically ingest the data from all the companies we work with and build build a data warehouse. Mm -hmm. And at first, we would just do this for ourselves again because it's with, with all the companies' GLs in a data warehouse we have QA tools that run on that. And so I can see when a new vendor comes up and it shows up in a different account than they did before. I can Mm. see when a new vendor shows up and has been paid more than $600 and I don't have a 1099. Mm. And we automate all those like specialized digital micro tasks that bookkeepers and accountants have to deal with every day. And, you know, just as as a systems engineer, I, you know, just really wanted to build a system where we could help more companies. And that's, you know, at Assemble Brands, we, we've lent out, you know, over $100 million to emerging mm-hmm. consumer brands and helped hundreds of companies along, mm-hmm. along the way. And now I really wanted to uncork that and do it basically for anybody using QuickBooks Online. And, uh, yeah. and we're just having a lot of fun with it. Yeah, that's, that's, that's such a great mission. Um, I want to pivot a little bit back to uh, Second Life. And I know you were probably one of the, you know, in this second life is probably one of the, to your point, the first sort of digital universes or di- digital digital land sales and things like that. And that's obviously been um, pretty popular over the last couple of years with NFTs, Facebook turning into uh, renaming themselves to Meta, um, and, you know, so many other uh, big headlines around other stories in crypto. Are you following that space at all anymore? Or are you completely out of the um, digital goods and digital land space? Yeah, no, no, no. I'm, I definitely follow it. I'm, uh, we're the CFO for a company called Topia, Topia.io, which just received capital mm-hmm. from the Reddit co-founder Alexis Ohanian's seven seven six fund. And um, like I, Topia, I was like, super excited about because 
for me, it had all the best parts of Second Life in terms of the creator economy, in terms of, you know, kind of serendipitous conversations, people walking up to yep. each other, meeting people. And so those are that those are the aspects of Second Life. At the time, what we didn't know is that we thought we were the 3D web. We thought we thought this was the next, you know, <laughs> this is the way the world is going to interact because we were living in it. And, you know, I we, like I said, we would the whole company would have meetings in Second Life and mm-hmm. we would meet with people from all over the world in Second Life. And um, when everybody's in it, it's good. And that's sort of like when COVID hit and everybody shows up on Zoom. Wow. It turns out we all can be more productive. Um, yep. And so it's definitely it's interesting to see basically the same stories being retold 20 years later. And I, I think it has, you know, huge potential. You know, Mike, I have four kids and, you know, we have the Oculus and they're mm-hmm. they're just like super fun to play with. But, mm-hmm. you know, from a business use perspective, wearing an Oculus is just not going to happen in a business meeting. It's just mm-hmm. not helpful. It's cumbersome. <laughs> it's almost like at the yeah. time, Second Life had like a 50 meg download when, no, you know, most people still had DSL back then. And so it was just prohibitive. But what I did say and write about a lot back then was that the world needs a global digital microcurrency. Mm-hmm. You know, and back in back in 2003, 2004, I could send a third of a cent to a person in India with zero transaction costs. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure there's another platform that can actually do that Mm -hmm. even today. And I think I think blockchain, uh, an amazing technology in many cases, is putting the cart before the horse. Mm -hmm. And at Assemble Brand, I mean, at uh, Second Life, sorry, the Mm -hmm. the Linden dollar was a ledger currency. Mm -hmm. And I think. I, I said back then that the the world needs a global digital microcurrency, but it's going to be created by somebody who doesn't start out to create it. It's going to, and it starts with community. And the reason the Linden dollar had value is because people wanted, you needed the Linden dollars to participate in the community, mm-hmm. and that's actually happening right now in in crypto and and uh, you know blockchain currencies. The mm-hmm. the the community itself, like. I sort of feel, and and maybe maybe it's because I saw I saw this twenty years ago. I sort of feel like the the majority of the purpose of cryptocurrencies today yeah. is for the community of people who are hyping them. Mm-hmm. And when you get down to the actual usage of the currency, it reminds me of when we had to shut down gambling in Second Life. Mm-hmm. And this was a, this is a great story too. So. I ran the country's largest illegal gambling casino, which was Second Life. <laughs> and when we sh- when we had we were preparing to go public, it was like on my checklist for things we probably shouldn't do. <laughs> and facilitating gambling uh-huh. online, it is probably something that we can't do. Is it's certainly yeah. fine when it's small and it's just you know us friends kind of doing it, you know. But if we're going to be a public company, that's probably not going to fly. So on one day we announced it and we turned off the, you know, the, the random number generators that were driving a lot of the, a lot of it. And, you know, the economy tanked, right? <laughs> yep. And everybody, you know, the value of the Linden dollar dropped outside the normal trading range mm-hmm. that we were managing it in. But very, very quickly, what we realized, Peter, is that, is that the volume of transactions for gambling is super high. Mm -hmm. You and I just pass money back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. It makes the economy look a lot bigger. The net transaction is I, you know, you won $5 and I lost $5, 
right? But that could have been that could have been five thousand dollars worth of transactions if we were playing poker all night, right? Yep. And so when you strip out the net transactions in Second Life of gambling, what we found is that, and then I just posted this on the blog. It's like all we're going to do is stop selling Linden dollars for three weeks. And mm-hmm. that will consume the growth of Second Life will consume the volume of the currency that was being spent on gambling. Wow. And and immediately after we published that, this currency stabilized. And mm-hmm. that's, you know, there's definitely definitely like blockchain is great for a decentralized authority. And, you know, mm-hmm. we can see what happens when a maniacal leader has control of of weapons and you know, what's mm-hmm. going on in, in uh, Russia and Ukraine is just, you know, disgusting. But at the end of the day, I think a trusted community is way more important than the technology of their exchange. Yeah, that's really interesting because I think that if you think about like where crypto is really headed in the last few years around, especially DAOs and, you know, on just a kind of the vision of Web3 and you know, many DAOs minting NFTs to really have a, a currency of exchange for their, or, you know, of use within their own platform. It feels like that is sort of a real realization um, of second life that, you know, or second coming of second life, maybe a good way to think about it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, uh, it's super, it's a super fun time to have had that experience with just, you know, Philip Rosedale and Jin mm-hmm. Su Yoon and just some, all the amazing technology people there. It was, mm-hmm. it's fun to see it come back around. Yeah, and for the folks on the phone, this might be before their time and the, the technology place. I'd love to hear you know you, you talked about the beginning <laughs> of Second Life and some of the the, the highlights, of especially you know um, the road to the IPO. I, I know, and I, I know you talked about you stayed there past it was its own relevance. Can you talk a little bit about the kind of like what were some of the things that led to to the end, or what were some of the um, lessons learned from your perspective on you know digital communities, you know, oh yeah, company so, startups hype, all that. Yeah, startups and hype. I mean, Second Life. Second Life was, you know, the person who didn't take the CFO job at Second Life, uh, he ended up going to be the CFO at YouTube. And uh, six months later, YouTube sold to Google. So I, I definitely I definitely missed that by by one click. <laughs> um, but but I think I think, you know, we thought we were the 3D web. Mm-hmm. And what I what in hindsight, what I realized is we were an economic game. And, you know, back then it was like 60% of our revenue came from profitable in-world businesses. Mm -hmm. And that would be, they would buy land and they would create an experience Mm -hmm. and they would build a community around that experience and they would sell digital goods. And they were, you know, there were, we were minting millionaires in Second Life. Mm -hmm. And the reality is it's all still happening. And this is, you know, there's an old, old, you know, MMOs never die. Massively multiplayer online games never die Mm -hmm. because people meet people in those worlds and they really don't get to interact with them in real life. Mm -hmm. And so that's if that's where all your friends are, that's where you're going to go. Yeah. And if the medium of exchange is the Linden dollar, you're going to use it. And, And I think that's where that's where, you know, like gambling in Second Life was you know, was a big volume of the transactions. And I think, I think today, like hype is a big volume of the transactions. But if you tried to show me, you know, real economic exchange happening on the blockchain, it's hard to see something that crosses the chasm into widespread adoption right now. 
And but that's not to say I will say, you know, Bitcoin itself, mm-hmm. I don't see that as a currency. I see it yeah. as a fixed amount of real estate. And that is a, a very different thing than, you, you know, something you would use for transactions. It's a store of value that where because there, it's just brilliantly designed like and it looks more like land on Earth than it does like mm-hmm. the U.S. dollar. Yeah, that, that's that's really interesting. Yeah, I think that the broad space of crypto has just exploded so much in the last 36 months even that, you know, you have people who are still focusing on, the, you know, Bitcoin as an asset. But of course, it's just expanded so much in terms of just other uses. And I, I agree with you. I think there's, a, you know, we're still such early days there with... So early. So early with like latency and like even at the protocol level and like, will we ever be able to like really truly monetize a protocol level again? There's so many deeper questions and philosophical questions there that I think they're a probably another podcast, but it's, it's so fascinating mm-hmm. to hear your, um, is sort of the, the OG world of the metaverse, uh, is uh, a second life. And so it's been, you know, really fascinating to hear, um, some of those stories there. Um, I, I know yeah, we're, thank you. we're down to just the last few minutes. I figured I'd give you one more shot of like, you know, it sounds like you, you've definitely seen, like, I, I want to bring it back down to the original question around awkward conversations. You know, I, it sounds like you've had some really fascinating experiences across a lots of different scale from, you know, early stage founders to IPO. What are some of the awkward conversations that you've had to have with these early stage founders? Because I'm not, I'm sure not every single, not all these companies have become General Assembly and, and yeah, you know, exactly. some of these others. I'd love to hear some of the awkward conversations you've had specifically related to like, Hey, you know, the metrics you're showing them every week, either that they're not moving or something, something else is up. Like what, how, how do those conversations go? Yeah. So, you know, I think, um, Adam Pritzker and Jake Schwartz from general assembly used to say it was like going to the dentist and, you know, going to the dentist is awkward for many people, but it's, you know, it's sort of fun for the dentist. (laughs) and so you know i tend to be able to call the baby ugly and then throw in a laugh or you know a joke Mm -hmm. that makes it you know much more approachable but you know i think i think you have to like the stockdale paradox you have to confront the reality of your business as it is Mm -hmm. and know that in the end you will prevail and and when you, if you're driving towards, and, and I've had success because of focusing on big visions and positive unit economics. And in every case, like Second Life, the big vision I told you about and General Assembly, in every case, immediately, I love the big visions, but then we focus on the positive unit economics. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think there's, I think a lot of founders, you know, think they have to raise a lot of money and build a product when... What we do at Bright Sun Systems is really try to make it so you have an infinite runway. And the way to get an infinite runway is to develop a revenue stream that can pay you. Mm -hmm. And if you can develop a revenue stream that can pay you, then you can pursue your big vision for the rest of your life. And that's that's what we're doing with Bright Sun Systems. Mm -hmm. And we'd love to give the gift to anybody who's listening to the podcast um, at gift.brightsend.com. And... um, yeah, and thank you, Peter. And let's definitely everybody subscribe to this podcast and excited to kick it off with you here. Yeah, thanks a lot, John. He's been such an excellent guest. And of course, um, 
subscribe to the podcast if so you don't miss an episode. Uh, and if you want to get in touch with John, is what, where's the best place to get in touch with you? Is that on uh, LinkedIn, Twitter? Yeah, that, yeah, LinkedIn. LinkedIn is I, I'm on that a lot. But even just going to gift.brightsend.com and filling out that form. We're we're a San Diego company, just like ClickUp, and uh, so that's going to go into our ClickUp, and uh, we're, we're gonna we're gonna follow up and and try to help. Oh, awesome! I'll be taking a look at that website here shortly as well. All right. Well, thanks everyone. All right. Thanks, Peter.